0: We as a leadership team have kind of thought for 2020, one of the things we'd love to see is not just that we get older, but that we get more mature. You to think of like one word. What would the word for 2020 be? It would be maturity. Um, I just want to honor some of you who are involved in our Kids Rock ministry in Greenpoint in the morning. Uh, Last Sunday, we had over 30 children, which in the city is like unheard of, breaking all kinds of records. Michelle leads that team. I saw Graham and Courtney there this morning. And uh, it's such a joy to see these little lives Getting older, but do you notice there's a difference between getting older and getting more mature, right? Getting older just happens automatically. Getting mature is, a, is something different. I've noticed in my own life, there's probably been seasons where I've got older, but I didn't necessarily grow in, uh, in, a, in maturity. Dallas Willard, who has informed a lot of what we've been covering, understanding what it means to practice the way of Jesus, said this. He said, the good news of Jesus is opposed to earning, is opposed to earning, that's the good news of Jesus, that word hosanna that we sang earlier, it means God saves, it means no one is good enough to save themselves. no one can pull themselves up to the level required. So we sing hosanna because we say God saves, it's God initiative, the good news of Jesus is that it's all his work freely given as a gift to us. But the good news of Jesus, whilst it's opposed to earning, is not opposed to effort, it's not opposed to us learning to practice the ways of Jesus, and in so doing, grow, in our levels of maturity. So we sort of looked at it and said, okay, cool, we want to be mature. Well, then paint a target. What would the three goals be? If we want to grow in maturity, what would it look like? And these are the three which we've covered in January. It would involve being with Jesus, being with Jesus, becoming like Jesus, and doing what Jesus would do if if he were you. You'll notice the word Jesus comes up often. It's, it's about him. He's the one that we worship. He's the one we look at, and he's the one whose life we're going to look at closely tonight as we focus in on that last one of doing what Jesus would do. And I suppose if you want to have a question, some of us are wired like that. What would the question be? It would be, as we wrap up this January series, the question would be, what is the end goal? Like, what is the end goal of all this? Being with Jesus, becoming like Jesus, doing what Jesus did, help me to focus, help, help paint a picture Practicing the way of Jesus is a call to apprenticeship. It's a call to discipleship. It's a call to to something with a purpose. And so that's what we're going to be exploring together tonight. What I'm going to do is I'm actually going to look at the book of Mark. Sometimes you've come to church and the last thing you do is actually look closely at Jesus. You study all kinds of other things. And and I I don't want to do that tonight. Tonight, I want us to slow down and just read as Mark, one of the four who wrote a biography about Jesus captures his life. He had to obviously edit out a lot of things. There was a lot there, but let's, let's look at how Jesus went about doing life. If we want to know what it means to do what Jesus would do, let's have a look at what Jesus did. So reading from Mark 1, um, we're going to read from a bunch of chapters that should appear on the screen. We're going to look at what Jesus did. So Mark 1, uh, chapter, uh, chapter 1, verse 6, 6, 16, it says, This passing along the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Peter. The brother of Simon, sorry, saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. Now, straight away, there's a bit that's lost in translation here. What Jesus is saying is, Follow me. He's, He's calling them to a radical change of life, he's calling them to be with him, he's calling them to to learn from him and to become fishers of men. Now, most of us reading through 21st century years here are fishers of men. That's quite clever. It's like a witty little one-liner, like, you're a fisherman? Hey, I'm going to keep you being a fisherman, but now you're going to catch men, right? So if it was a bunch of accountants who would have gone, hey, guys, come with me. I'll make you count people. You know, like it would have been like that it's like how he would go about doing it. But we would miss it because there was a phrase, fishers of men, which meant to be a captivating teacher. So fishermen would, with their nets, captivate all the fish and capture the fish. And what it meant to be a, a well-respected rabbi was to capture fish, would be a fisher of men. You'd so capture them with the way you lived your life, the way you taught about life, you were just doing life so well that people would flock and say, Jesus, if you want to have your questions answered, that's the person who's captivating. That's a fisher of men. So what Jesus actually did is quite exceptional. He's going to a bunch of fishermen saying, guys, come to me. Follow me, and I'm going to make you live a life such that everyone else will lean in and be captured by the way in which you're able to point towards true north, the way in which you're able to be human well. That's why they dropped their fishing nets, because no one makes that offer to you. Remember, we've studied it over the month. To be a disciple of Jesus was, firstly, normally, to memorize five books of the Bible, all of those. Then you had to really be good at that. Then you got to memorize even more of the Old Testament scripture, and only the best of the best. The Navy SEALs who'd memorized all this stuff, right, would be invited in to this level of intimacy, to be invited in to become rabbis themselves, to be invited in to become fishers of men. And Jesus is bypassing all the traditional ways of selecting your crew. He goes to fishermen, very, very unlikely candidates, and he invites them into a relationship with him to be his Talmudin, to be his disciples to learn from him. I thought of a modern equivalent. It would be like a Harvard professor coming to us and just saying, "Hey, I know you've got no undergrad, I know you've got no postgrad. I know a thing about disruptive technologies or innovations, whatever the 4 IR, like whatever the buzzword is. And they just said, "You come, follow me. I will make you a speaker paid thousands in US. dollars." I'm like, "Come in, I in, OK? It, it's, it's astounding what he's inviting them into. And it's not just them. We keep reading. Immediately, they left their nets, followed him. And going on a little further, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat, men in the nets, and immediately called them. And they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. Let's keep reading. What happens? They went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astounded at his teaching for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. Jesus is straight away saying, you're gonna come with me and I'm gonna teach you how to do life well. And he starts teaching. Probably the best, if you have never read it, please do go read in the book of Matthew. That biographer captures Matthew 5, 6, and 7, often known as the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is teaching a whole new way of living. Sometimes referred to as the Christian constitution. Like if you wanna know how to live well, study his teaching. Turn the world upside down. Still in Mark 1, we get to verse 35. Rising early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus departed and went out to a desolate place. And there he prayed, and Simon and those who were with him searched for him. They found him, said to him, everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, let us go on to the next towns that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. Calling some people to himself. Teaching in astounding ways. The crowds gather what does Jesus do? He doesn't run towards the crowds. he runs away. He goes and prays in a desolate place. His disciples are like flabbergasted by this like, countercultural leadership strategy of running away from the people, and they go hunt him down, and they're like, come on, the people are there, this thing is taking off. And he says, no, 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 I, I'm gonna go elsewhere, I'm gonna go and preach a message elsewhere. Sometimes there are people eager, like eager, they're like, pick me, pick me, pick me, I'm here, I'm here. And he's going, no, 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 there's something else I'm going on about my business. So he keeps going. Let's now jump to chapter two from verse 13. Jesus went out again beside the sea and all the crowd was coming to him. He was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at a tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. So Jesus has just abandoned the pick me, pick me, eager beavers. And he has a guy sitting in his tax booth. Notice he's not even following Jesus. He doesn't even want to be close to Jesus. He's just chilling in his tax booth, like just another day at the tax booth. And again, 21st century, we don't understand who he is. He is a conspirator. He's got in politically with the Romans, and he's extorting his own people. He has to pay Caesar's set amount. The Jewish people don't know what that amount is. Once he's paid Caesar, he can keep whatever's on the top. And so he's able to get money. No, it's for Caesar, it's for Caesar, but he actually knows the number. He passes that on, and he gets to keep the rest. Something to again of a modern equivalent, this would be someone who conspired with the apartheid government, pretended to be maybe an activist, but actually was in there with the security police and would, and would tip off people and would kind of be an accomplice to the atrocities that are faced in our land. Jesus goes to him and says, follow me. All the eager beavers ignored. Him sitting in his booth, just chilling. He's invited in to become a Talmudin. Still in Mark 2, he reclined, a table in his house, because he goes in and, uh, and hangs out with the tax collectors. Many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes or the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? So Jesus ignores the eager beavers goes for the tax collector, has dinner with them. They know, the religious people, that this is unheard of. You've had hospitality with all the wrong people. And so they ask the obvious question, what's wrong with this guy? He's having dinner with all the wrong people. He's clearly not a great teacher. He's he's not invested in the best of the best. He seems to be investing in the worst of the worst. And the Pharisees had been meticulously waiting for Jesus. They'd been keeping the law meticulously. They'd been looking for the good news that we're gonna be studying from next week onwards. They were the ones that should be the most pumped to have God coming to rescue us. But They're the ones the most disgruntled, the most put out, the most offended by who Jesus is. Ultimately, they're the ones that crucify him and put him on a cross. The religious people that should be the most excited about Jesus are the ones that are the most uh the most plotting, the most, his, they're his biggest enemies. Fascinating when you look at what Jesus did. He went up on the mountain, called to him those who he desired, and they came to him. And he approached or appointed 12, whom he also called apostles, so they might be with him. And he sent them out to preach and have authority to cast out Demons. I'm having to skip out. We're gonna study the book of Mark this year, but he's healing people and he's setting people free from demons. He's doing all kinds of work and he then says, 12, come. Imagine being number 13, like, hey, hey, like, no, I'm sorry, I'm only, doing, I'm only working with 12. It's like disappointing for number 13, you know? Uh, there would have been a number 13, and you don't know. And, and he's saying, I'm gonna work with these guys. I'm gonna pull them close. I'm gonna empower them. And maybe this model of apprenticeship is something that you'd be familiar with if you're in the marketplace and you're involved in any kind of mentorship program. I'm sure you've seen the next kind of four stages, which we kind of see Jesus now getting up to. First stage, I do, you watch. you know, Just come, be with me, see what I do. Then I do you help, get a little bit more involved. Then you do I help. And then the final stage of apprenticeship would be you do and I watch. A bit classic, I'm sure you guys have seen this in your your marketplace environments. This is very much what Jesus now does. He identifies the 12 and he sets them up and he gives them more assignments as they go along. Let's have a quick read from Mark chapter six. He called the 12, began to send them out two by two, gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals, not put on two tunics. Very practical advice here. He said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. This was very realistic. It's gonna at times be tough because look at verse 11. And if any place will not receive you, And they will not listen to you. When you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. It's not always gonna be unicorns and rainbows. So they went out, proclaimed that people should repent, change their thinking about God, change their thinking that they're good enough, like the Pharisees, to try to reach up to heaven. No, heaven's come to them. That's what they need to see and understand. They cast out many demons, anointed with all many who were sick, and healed them. And now that apprenticeship program takes over as more and more Jesus empowers them and sets them up. And ultimately, in Matthew 28, we, we jump out of Mark right at the end here. Just, I think it captures it beautifully. The 11 disciples went to Galilee. You'll notice one of them didn't make it, Judas. They went to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Did you love that verse? It's like, yeah, we saw you resurrected from the dead, but I still have some concerns. Still some doubts in my mind. I mean, isn't that realistic to the human condition? We have these moments where you're like, oh my gosh, that is God. That is why I'm here. And other moments where you're like, yeah, but that doesn't add up. And you'll notice he's still inviting them to come to him, to hear from him. Jesus said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples. Make Talmudin. Make what I did with you for all these years. Be with me. Become like me. Now I'm asking you to do what I did. Go and do what I did. Go and make them fishers of men, just as I promised I would make you fishers of men. Go now and do likewise of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe some, no, no, all that I have commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. Jesus has empowered his apprentices to go and make disciples, teaching people, to, to do what Jesus would do. And so over and over again, we see Jesus, this is the pattern that emerges. He announces, I am the Messiah, I'm, I'm God, come to be with you. The kingdom of, of God is broken in. I'm calling you to be with me, to become like me, follow me, and now do what I would do. I'm, I'm empowering you, and I'm sending you out into this world. And here we are, thousands of years on the tip of Africa, the beneficiaries of this small group of people that were empowered with the message and the life of Jesus Christ. So I asked you a question right at the beginning. What is the end goal? What is the purpose of our apprenticeship? What is happening? Now, I think if we think of apprenticeship, it becomes a bit clearer if, if any of you have studied to be an accountant or a lawyer. You go and do your articles. If you study to uh, rewire a house to become an electrician or to become a plumber, if at the end of all your articles someone came to you and said, hey, I've got a problem with my plumbing, you went, why are you telling me? It's like, oh, well, you were an apprentice, right? You studied to be a plumber. It's like, yeah. So let's do the plumbing stuff. Like, let's do the plumbing stuff. You're like, no, 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 my friend. I just studied it. I can't actually do it. <laughs> I mean, I think all of us would stop and be like, hey, I don't know what apprenticeship you were part of, but it feels like it didn't get to the final point, right? It didn't quite land where it should have landed. The, the, the end goal of this I think, is that we should mature into the person who carries on the work of Jesus. That Jesus has said, I'm going, but I'm sending. I'm with you always. I'm sending the Spirit, and I I want you to mature. What maturity looks like in the city of Cape Town is you becoming the kind of person who will continue the work of Jesus, continue his work. And I'm nervous that we'll read that through quite an individualistic lens and be like, okay, it's about me becoming mature. And so I also want to add this sentence at the bottom, which is, I think, The end goal is to mature into a community that continues the work of Jesus. Because there's some uniqueness to what you can contribute, which others here can as well. And together, we start to reflect what what a God who loves the city would would do if he was us. Okay, Paul, so, so what was the work of Jesus? I, I kind of would ask you to go look at those four biographies of his life. Go look at the, the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. I think you'd come up with a list that looks a little bit like this. What he did was he preached the good news. He said, Guys, all these, all these ways of self effort are not working. God has come to save. There's good news. He then talked the way. He said, I, I, I'm coming to show you how to live life, to be fully human, to be connected to God at all times, to enjoy his presence. He prayed as we saw, reminding himself of who he was, connected to the Father. He prophesied. He had an anticipation of what the kingdom breaking in would look like, and he would heal the sick because there's no sickness in eternity, and he would cast out demons because the, the, the strangleholds that, that, that can come into our lives, he brings liberty for those. He did justice, standing for the marginalized, for those downtrodden, those who were acted against. He did peacemaking, and not the false peacemaking when you run and go, shh, shh, it's gonna be okay. No, he... He spoke truth to power. He really rolled up his sleeves and he, and he got the real issues out on the table and then moved towards them. He stood against religious and political corruption. And my final one, which I love, he ate and drank with people far from God. Another gospel writer, Jesus, uh, uh, Luke of Jesus said, he came to seek and save the lost. So you're like, whoa, that's a big game plan. Seek and save the lost. How did he do it? He ate and drank with people far from God. <laughs> had the table, we saw it when he called the tax collector straight away, he said, come, let's have a meal. And he was so sneaky about it, he was like, I don't actually have a home, so it's gonna have to be at your spot. <laughs> just bring some water, I'll turn it into wine. You know, like, uh, like, he didn't have a lot that he could share, but he was like, we're doing this thing. We're doing this thing. But if you look at that list, straight away, I hope you see, man, we're not gonna be doing this thing in a quick fix manner. We're not gonna be like, oh, okay, cool, let's focus on that like, that one. No, there's a lot there that is gonna take time. And I also think a lot of you are gonna say, but Paul, yo, I'm inspired by that list, but I'm also kind of aware of the times I'm living in, in the 21st century, and I'm, I'm seeing a gap. And in fact, let's get very practical, Paul. <clears throat> I'm not Jesus, and I'm not God. So we've got a nod out of two so far. So, whilst it's inspiring to do what Jesus would do, I'm kind of also feeling a an little ankle tapped right at the beginning because I'm not Jesus and I'm not God. And I'm living in incredibly complex times. I don't want to overcomplicate the argument, but at the same time, I think we need to understand where we've arrived at this particular moment. We're all largely children of the Enlightenment. The Enlightenment was a period of time where Rene Descartes, I'm grateful, he did this. He said, I think, therefore, I am. And he he started a revolution in saying, we've got to pay a lot of attention to truth, and we've got to pay a lot of attention to to how we come to truth. And we've had this kind of scientific revolution that came out of the church, and was all about the fact that Jesus was the way, the truth, and the life, and let's try and find out what the truth is. But in so doing, the debates then kicked off and said, you know what, why Jesus is so special is because he... He did supernatural things. The first time the word supernatural came into the world was because of the Enlightenment. They said, you know, there's all these natural things, but Jesus is supernatural, so he must be God. But what you ignore when you use that language is that the early church also did some pretty supernatural things. The early followers of Jesus did some supernatural things, and we've maybe used the Enlightenment and the logic of it to try and make a case that Jesus was God, but we've then, at the same time, disempowered the expectations we have of the kingdom breaking in the city of Cape Town the, very practically, I'm an, I studied to become a CA, and we had this tool called the definition of an asset. Very proud of it. I could give it to you, but I'm not. And using the definition of an asset, do you know what? When you valued a company, you could never put people on the balance sheet. Now, you're not even an accountant, but I hope you're thinking, wait a second, Paul. The, the business surely is impacted by how good the people are. I mean, if they've got really good people, it's a valuable business, right? And if they don't have good people, It's not a value, I mean, you know, I hope, hey, yes, yes, people are important. But as an accountant, we had this definition, and we were like, sorry, you can't control people. Definition says, and because you can't control them, they're not measurable. Oh, I'm not gonna put them on my balance sheet. Where am I going with this? For many years, I had my little definition. I was very proud of it. I was precisely wrong, rather than being approximately right. I mean, but I was like, this is what we do. I have my definition, I apply it. Now, let's go to the enlightenment. What's happening? We're saying everything needs to be scientifically measured. It has to be in a pipette tube, has to have a little sliding thing, all those experiments we did, that is real. Whatever can be measured is real. Anything else, supernatural, not real. The problem with that way of thinking is, what scientific test did you do to establish that only scientific tests are real? boomerangs on itself. You can't use a test to prove that only things tested are real. And I'm not knocking science. I love science. But I, I am aware that we can grab tools that we think explain the whole world. There's no such thing as people being an asset. But actually, they only explain a little sliver and they miss out on purpose and meaning and life eternal. And so when we come to a list like Jesus had, he He gives us this list, and we go, oh, no, some of that stuff's only Jesus is possible. Only Jesus can do that because, you know, that stuff doesn't exist anymore. But then we actually wake up, we go, no. For Jesus, there was no supernatural natural. There was the kingdom and a life apart from God. And when the kingdom breaks in, it does so in power. It does so in a way that God is put on display. If we make it about us, then we like wanna get the list way down. But if we make it about him, we go, well, if he created all of this, sea point, promenade, all the whole thing, I mean, he can do some stuff. I've seen if he can create this, the galaxies in the world, then he can probably break in in ways that would, would surprise me. So all said and done, we do live in complex times, and there are challenges, but if we want the life of Jesus, we need to adopt the lifestyle of Jesus, and we need to, to long for his kingdom to break in. Leanne, my wife, sent me this quote. They're busy doing a study of the book of Revelation, and I I thought it captured up quite quite well our cultural moments. Let's read it. Two 20th century authors gave competing visions of the future. One, George Orwell wrote 1984, where he saw a totalitarian state ruling people's lives through absolute control, constant surveillance, and oppression. Aldous Huxley, on the other hand, wrote Brave New World, He imagined a society that was controlled by gratuitous sex, pleasure, and meaningless entertainment. Keep reading, Orwell feared those who would deprive us of information. Huxley feared those who would give us so much information that would be reduced to passivity and egoism. Orwell feared that the truth would be concealed from us. Huxley feared the truth would be drowned in a sea of irrelevance. Or feared we would become a captive culture. Huxley feared we would become a trivial culture. Two competing visions. I think you can see which one we landed in. Just missing the main event in this life. And I'm not talking about kind of just a few of us. I think this is this is all of us. You don't have to look far. I think one of um people in this congregation sent me this pick of Monopoly for millennials and uh, I thought I'd show you guys. Adulting is hard, you deserve a break. And instead of collecting properties, you collect experiences. (laughs) And if someone has an experience after you've already experienced it, you get to collect money from them. (laughs) If anyone's traveled lately, you notice it's like a strong selfie game required at all national monuments or any moment that it has to be captured online. It's like we're pressurizing ourselves, not just at work with our technology, but on holiday as well. That's crazy. In Cape Town, we, we, we have the work hard, play hard. We've got to be going and getting our careers going, but at the same time, we've got to chill harder than anyone else. Recent conversations I've had, it's like, hey, have you got tickets to the Federer and Nadal game? Oh, shame, you don't. <laughs> Sorry about that. Obviously, you don't have connections, like I have connections. Or, did you not hear about the lottery? Ah, oh, we are on holiday. Missed the email. Sorry, man. And you're like, oh, where am I gonna get that? And it's like you're running around living this frazzled life and doing what Jesus would do just seems so far away because you, well, adulting is hard. And then to be a Christ follower in this culture is also incredibly tough. To say that you believe in what Jesus said and who he is, it's incredibly tough. Whether you're a wedding venue or a professional sports person, it doesn't matter. If you stand publicly for your faith, it can have big consequences. You're not held as a hero. You, you face... Judgment about being yourself judgmental. and I'm not just talking about a few people. I should say I'm talking about all of us. It's in me to kind of be trying to make sense of how to do what Jesus would do. And I want to quickly just show you two books which have really helped us as a leadership team. If you want to know what your leaders are kind of learning from, this book Emotionally Healthy Leadership by Pete Scazzaro. It's been incredibly helpful. A bunch of us have been going through on Thursday mornings learning what it means to slow down and to allow God's, life and his presence to flow through us. And then secondly, the ruthless elimination of Harry by John Marcomo is another voice into our story which I want to recommend. Coming into land, I've got five brief thoughts to remove this overwhelm. This Aldous Huxley recommended that it wasn't going to be a a lack of information. We were going to be over, like oversupplied with information. We weren't going to tend towards kind of like anything other than just a trivial culture. So what, what five brief thoughts can I help us with to remove the oval. The first is to remember the spiritual formation model which we chatted around yesterday, what it means to, I mean last week, to become like Jesus. Uh, I'll shoot up the model. It's gonna probably be too small and if you guys need a copy, I'm sure Yana we can get copies. We handed them out last, last week. But all of us haven't arrived at this moment a blank slate, right? We all have arrived at this moment with stories that we believe, habits that we've formed, and relationships that have shaped us. And we've been shaped by culture, Cape Town culture as we sit here today. You might say, "Paul, I don't have habits." No, of course you do. You wake up at a time, you feed the dog, you go for you you just have unintentional habits. You just haven't thought about them and they come in and out of your life. And that's why we say there's an unintentional way to be formed, and then there's an intentional way of saying, "I want to become who God made me to become. I want to be good at being a human. I want to be good at what it means to be made in the image of God." And so I want the teaching of Jesus to inform my life. I want his practices, what he did to inform my life, and I want to be part of a community that's doing that because I don't have all the answers myself. Just a reminder of Jesus' apprenticeship model, there's going to be some stuff where you're just going to watch. You're going to be like, I don't know what's going on. I'm just watching from the sides for a while. There's other stuff where you're actually prepared to take the next step and to start doing and for others to help you or to be watching you. All at different stages and to remind ourselves of that. And then finally, my, my slide from James Clear's book, Atomic Habits, Remember, there's always gonna be a gap between what we expect should happen and what actually happens. As you step out and make changes in your life, the value of disappointment will wait for you. If in life group, everyone's sitting around and saying, no, going well, going chilled, no worries. You know they're lying. Because what they should be saying is, I had such high hopes for this week. I did this thing, it got even worse. They should be wallowing in the value of disappointment and you can be like, ah, good. You are making progress, you are maturing. And we're gonna help you remove those obstacles so that the hockey stick can curve up in the near future. So remember this model. Secondly, know your stage of discipleship and stage of life. Some of you are new to faith and there's there's small steps that you can take. Don't compare yourself to someone else in the room. Take the next step for you. Don't try and microwave it and, and, and be like others in your life. Source of encouragement here. Jesus was obscure for 30 years. I don't know how long you feel like you've been obscure, but 30 years is a long time. It's at times like this where it's hard to lead a church because we're all at different stages. Some of you, honestly, need a kick, a hard kick, because you're just chilling, and you're not taking your life seriously, and you're not maturing. You've had the same year of experience, repeated over and over again. You're like, yeah, I'm 10 years older. No, you've, you're one year old times 10, right? And that's not what God's got for you. There are others of you that are wounded and you just keep going, you keep running and actually your time has come to go, why do you keep running? Slow down, allow God to love you, allow community to heal you. Don't think you can perform your way in, into the Father's love. You need to calm down. And so, so how do you, from here, tell you what to do? Well, some of you need to kick, others of you need to stop. And you need to work out which stage of discipleship you're at and which stage of life you're at and we need to do that together. There's some of you that are Running around the stage of life that, that, that is uncontrollable, and we need to get around you and figure out what that looks like. The doctors that are working late nights, calls, CarMac Life Group, what does that look like? A Saturday morning breakfast, whatever it is, let's figure it out together. Thirdly, don't underestimate the power of community. We're so pushed towards our journey and our story and our maturity, but it's got to be more than just an individual thing, it's got to be a group thing. Dallas World had this amazing phrase that a church can become a community where essentially we become an academy of how to live life well. Imagine that, just getting together with a group of people saying, what does it mean to be following God, to be made in God's image? What does it mean to live life well, to love well, to be hospitable well, to have joy, peace? Let's, let's do that together. Fourthly, start with the basics. Start with the basics. If you are new to faith, can I encourage you to just come and look at who Jesus is, Come to Alpha, which we having this Jesus, this is the last time you will hear about Alpha for a long time. And the reason we're so passionate about it is we eat. That's what Jesus did. Everything's better with a meal. And then we talk. We create space to talk about who God is. We practice hospitality in each other's lives. And can I tell you, in a world full of loneliness and digital distraction, we're pounded with all this information. To have a meal, it's incredible. And if you can't be at Alpha, that's fine. Why don't you invite your neighbors, like your physical neighbors? Like the person living above you or below you or next to you, just say, hey, why don't you come over? And let's have a meal and let's start to, to do life together. And next week we start the book of Mark and there's opportunity to do the 30-day devotional that has been made available. There's an opportunity to read God's scripture. If you're asking me, Paul, what should I do? i say, well, take five minutes in the morning and read the teaching of Jesus. Take five minutes in the morning and then just turn off all devices and just wait to hear What God might be saying to you, and why don't you, every Sunday, just say, I'm gonna come to church. I don't normally do it, I kind of normally play it by ear. but hey, for a period of time, I'm just gonna be in community, I'm gonna choose to do that. Those things change our lives, those basic steps. And then finally, an encouragement to live in the moment, to live in the moment. So many of us are leaving the best moments in life by by the wayside because we're so busy with the goals that we've set for ourselves. One of my disappointments as I reflected on being a student is, I mean not a student, sorry, a lecturer at campus was every week I would have to have six hours of consulting time. And to be honest, I didn't like consulting time. It interrupted my life. And I loved just kind of getting on with the work and getting the lectures ready. And I would have a standing desk, so I was like, there, blah, blah, blah. And then there'd be a knock on the door, and I don't know if you can relate to this, but you just have the knock on the door and you kind of keep working and eventually like, you give the look. And the person would almost always say, uh, are these your consulting hours? Because they saw the look and they're like, this is not, I mean, he should be happy to see me. These are the consulting hours. But I was just like, please, don't waste my time. I saw, I saw it as an interruption from the work. I was going, how many of us are running through our lives, seeing things as interruptions? When actually, God's creating moments for us to enjoy his presence and to love people. Slowing down, living in the moment is a call to creating margin to love God and others. See, here's my point. The solution to an overbusy life is not more time. We'll always find more things to do. It's to slow down and simplify our lives around what really matters. John Marcoma, here's my point. The solution to an overbusy life is not more time. It's to slow down and simplify our lives around what really matters. Well, Paul, what really matters, it's being with Jesus, responding to that invitation to follow me. He invited fishermen, he invited tax collectors, he invited all the wrong kind of people to follow me. And then when you're spending time with him, it's an invitation to become like him, to do the things he would do. Will you stand with me? I'm going to pray, and I'm going to hand back to Steph as we conclude our time together. Jesus, I'm so glad that you promised that you are with us always to the end of the age. Right now, your spirit has been at work in our lives as we've gathered together. God, I do pray right now for my brothers and sisters that we would all respond to your spirit. You've been calling some of us to take fresh steps away from things, towards you. God, I pray right now that you would fill us with a fresh confidence, a fresh boldness, and a fresh courage to say that our lives are prioritized around what is most important, that we want to be with you, want to become like you, and we want to do what you would do if you were us, if you were you were living in the suburb of Seapoint. has so got as a community, we respond to you now and we invite your work. Help us together to um, learn from you. Help us together to not try and get a quick fix, but to travel through the valley of disappointment to get to what it means to live kingdom life, loving people because you first loved us. God, I thank you that it's not on us as a community to try and perform to get it right, but it's on us to look to you as our source of strength and as our great king. Amen.